Good morning, church. The Bible reading today is taken from Daniel 8, which is on page 727 of the Pew Bibles. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision, after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Uli Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power the large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. 
The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Please keep your Bibles open. This is another difficult passage like last week's. Uh, apocalyptic literature, uh, visions that God gave Daniel. Let me encourage you to uh, listen to last week's sermon if you haven't uh, heard it or you weren't here last week. Let me pray for us as we uh, consider today's passage. Lord Father, we thank you so much that you are good. We thank you that you are the reveal of mysteries and we thank you for the visions you gave Daniel. Uh, may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May we respond to your word correctly and rightly, and may we be ever thankful for Jesus Christ who has given us his spirit that we may worship you in the spirit and truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all make mistakes. Uh, Sometimes our mistakes are innocent, like a supermarket advertising. They're open nine days a week when there's only seven days in a week. Uh, Some of our mistakes might be out of ignorance, uh, like thinking that Hong Kong's in Africa when it's in fact in Asia. Uh, Some of our mistakes may have dire consequences, like the design of the Titanic, which was meant to be unsinkable. Uh, Some of our mistakes might be plain silly, like thinking it's safe to use our back as a carpenter's table saw. Uh, Some of our mistakes might be from overestimating our ability and taking on waves that are just too big. Some of our mistakes are in our relationships, whether that's going out with a guy who keeps breaking hearts or a guy who just doesn't know when to stop tattooing his arm. And if you're ever on millionaire hot seat and you're asked which of the following is the largest, don't make this woman's mistake. The moon is quite a bit bigger than the elephant. Now, making mistakes is part of being human. None of us are perfect and none of us will ever always get it right. But we need to learn from our mistakes. As the Brazilian novelist Paulo Coelho says, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. Or more bluntly, Einstein says, the definition of insanity is to repeatedly do the same thing and expect a different outcome. There should be a slide of that on the screen for you. What mistakes are you making in your life right now? Are you learning from them or have they become a tradition? Like this meme I found, I've been repeating the same mistakes in life for so long now, I think I'll start calling them traditions. Well, in today's passage, we appears that God's people once again make the same mistake. And the consequences of their mistake is so awful and terrifying that it makes Daniel sick in bed. Uh, so have a look at the last verse in tw- uh, chapter 8, verse 27. And look at how Daniel responds to the vision he receives. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay anxious, uh, exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Now, to understand today's passage, we need to understand the historical context. You see, the Jews were living in exile in Babylon because of their sins. And as we'll see next week, according to Jeremiah the prophet, this period was to last 70 years. And the expectation was that after 70 years, the Jews will return from exile, rebuild the temple, and God will once again be with them. 
The expectation was that the time of punishment would be over. God's people would have learned their lesson. They'd remain faithful to God, staying straying neither to the left nor to the right as they expressed their trust in the promises of God. And last week, Daniel would now learn that God would send one like the Son of Man, the Messiah, to overturn the beastly governments and rule for God. But now Daniel's given a second vision in verse 1, two years after he received the first, and so the years around 550 BC. And when he gets this second vision, do you notice how he describes it in verse 27? He says it's beyond understanding. Now I've read this passage so many times and every time I would just skim over verse 27 and Daniel's response to the vision. I just assume it's detail that doesn't really matter and information that just was included for the sake of completion. But what I realized as I studied this passage and as I meditated over the last few weeks is that it's the key to understanding the vision. Because I asked myself, why did Daniel say this vision, which he didn't say about last week's vision, why did he say to this vision here in chapter 8 is beyond understanding? Well, why did he, well, why was, we understand why he was so appalled by it, why he troubled him, but why was it beyond understanding for this prophet? of God who received the vision and the interpretation, even from Gabriel himself, was Gabriel the angel who interpreted the dream unclear? What was so beyond understanding for Daniel that he troubled him so much? Well, as I meditated and I thought and reflected on this passage, I think it's this. I think what troubled Daniel so much is that nothing really changes. The Babylonian exile will come to an end. The temple will be rebuilt. God will dwell with his people again, but nothing really changes. The Jews will make the same old mistake again and again and again. That is, they will continue to sin against God again and again and again. From idolizing the temple to ritualizing the sacrifices, from disobeying the Torah to giving lip service to God. The Jews make the same old mistakes again and sin against God again. Now why is this beyond understanding? Why does this trouble Daniel? I think it's this. If God's people can keep on sinning and never learn the lesson of the Babylonian exile, then what hope is there really? What hope is there really for the people of God? This cycle of repeated mistakes of God's people sinning against God, or if you'd like, this tradition of sin amongst God's people will never end. And in this vision, Daniel's told that this will happen again, but he's not given the solution. That's why it's beyond understanding. He knows it's going to happen again, but what's, what's the solution to this problem? This cycle of sin and punishment, will it ever come to an end? But what is beyond understanding for Daniel is not beyond understanding for us, isn't it? For we understand it, for we live on this side of the cross. Now, as uh, we come to today's passage, there's been a temptation by many to try to harmonize Daniel chapters 7 and 8. Now, I know why a lot of people do this, because if you read it, you'll notice that there uh, appears to be quite a bit of overlap 
especially in terms of the vision that's given of the beast and the horns. But I think it's actually a mistake. The, the first reason is that the little horn in da Daniel chapter 7 appears in the fourth kingdom, which most commentators associate with the Roman Empire. But here in Daniel chapter 8, the little horn is a king that arises from within the Greek Empire before its fall. And so those who try to collapse the two visions into one bigger one run into all sorts of trouble. The second reason is this. In Daniel chapter 7, the vision concerns the one like a son of man. And he will come to overturn the beastly governments to rule for God as God's man. And like I said last week, it's no accident that Daniel chapter 7 looks back to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 uh, when he was stripped of his mind and given the mind of a beast. And it was only when he acknowledged God as the one and true God that he was restored as a human being. And now in Daniel chapter 8, the vision concerns the king who will desecrate the sanctuary of God before being destroyed by God. And so it concerns the temple of God and the honor of God. And if you remember what happened in Daniel chapter 5, when King Belshazzar threw a great big banquet for his nobles, he took the gold and silver goblets from the temple of God in Jerusalem, but they didn't just drink from it. They praised their gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. And what happened? The writing on the wall. And that very night, King Belshazzar was slain. That is, King Belshazzar desecrated the temple of God and he was killed in accordance with the word of God that very night. And so just as Daniel 7 looks back to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, chapter 7 looks back to chapter 4 as the example, so here chapter 8 looks back to chapter 5 as the example. That is, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar foreshadows what is to come. When while Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 and the first vision in Daniel 7 focuses on the kingdom of God, Belshazzar in chapter 5 and the second vision in chapter 8 focuses on the worship of God. And so in light of this, we're going to appreciate and understand Daniel's second vision on its own right without trying to collapse it and to work out how it links to Daniel 7. Now that, now, now that we understand where we stand with Daniel 8, let's have a look at the vision. Now, like I said, this is hard work because what I'm trying to do here is not just to teach you how to understand God's word, but to teach you how to read God's word for yourself, to actually work out how do you understand and read apocalyptic literature about the visions God gives about the future. And so this is hard work, but it is good for us, and this is you know, solid food. It's not, it's not the milk that we give to infant babies. And so let's keep doing the hard work because the more hard work we do, the more we get out of this. And so Daniel chapter 8, it begins with Daniel seeing two beasts, a ram and a goat. Now verse 3 tells us that the ram has two horns, with one horn longer than the other, and it, and it does what it pleases, it becomes great. But, but then comes along a goat in verse 5 with a horn between its eyes. It moves so quickly that its legs doesn't even touch the ground. It, it charges the ram, shatters the two horns, and tramples on the ram. But at the height of its power, the goat's horn is broken and replaced by four other horns. And so the question then is, well, what's the ram and what's the goat? Who, who are they? 
Well, unlike Daniel chapter 7, we don't have to guess. In Daniel chapter 7, we're not told who those beasts are, but in chapter 8, we are. And so we don't have to guess. We're told from verse 20. Verse 20, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Now, Babylon was located in modern-day Iraq, while the Medes and Persians are in modern-day Iran. Now, history tells us in 559 BC, the Medes begin to rise, and they become powerful enough to make Cyrus II of Persia a vassal. So you've got the Medes and the Persians. The Medes, the smaller horn, dominate Cyrus the Persian. But about nine years later, in 550 BC, at around the time when Daniel actually sees this vision, Cyrus rebels and defeats the king of Media. And he becomes the emperor of all of Medo-Persia, the horn that grew larger. And by 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire falls to the Medo-Persian Empire and becomes the largest and most powerful empire that had existed at that time in the Near East. Now, Daniel's told that this will happen in the vision, and it's in fact fulfilled in his lifetime. This all unravels while he's still alive. But no matter how great and unstoppable the the Medo-Persian Empire becomes, even though they rule the known world for some 200 years, the kingdom collapses in a short three years. In 334 BC, you may have heard of this guy called Alexander the Great. More than 200 years after Daniel sees the vision, Alexander the Great leads his Greek army to a sweeping victory. He attacks the Persians with breathtaking speed. In three years, he completely annihilates this empire. In a brilliant series of uh, battles, he wins victory after victory over the Persians. And in less than 10 years, Alexander the Great carves out an empire that surpasses the Persians. It stretches from Greece all the way to northern India. And if this sounds like the goat that charges the ram that Daniel saw then you'd be right. Verse 21, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. Now, if you know your Greek history, then you'll know that at the peak of his power, Alexander the Great falls ill and dies of a fever in Babylon. And after his death, the kingdom is divided between his four generals. And once again, this is exactly what Daniel sees in the vision. Over 200 years earlier, so verse 22, the four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will never have the same power. Now, as fascinating as it would to dwell on Alexander the Great, the point of the vision isn't about him. But the small horn that grows out from one of the four empires that came from him So verse 9, out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Now even though this horn started small, it became powerful, even challenging God himself. And pretty much all commentators agree that this small horn is none other than Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV became powerful uh, and uh, toward the end of the Greek rule, through the ranks of the Seleucid Empire. 
As a young man, there wasn't a scrap of potential of greatness in him. In fact, he, w- he should have been a nobody. Because even when his father, Antiochus III, died, three people preceded him in the line of succession to the throne. But after, after deceiving his way through the ranks and throwing his weight around, possibly even murdering his own brother, he gains power and becomes the king of the Seleucid Empire by 175 BC. And by 171 BC, a few years later, he rules all of Palestine, the beautiful land. But Antiochus IV wasn't just power-hungry, he was the Hitler of the day. He hated the Jews and all things Jews, uh, Jewish. He devoted himself to the destruction of everything the Jewish religion stood for, from abolishing religious festivals to prohibiting Sabbath observance, from outlawing uh, Jewish customs such as circumcision to changing the Jewish monthly lunar calendar, from placing armed guards in the temple area to desecrating the sanctuary itself, from dedicating an, uh, an altar to Zeus in the temple, to designating himself Theos Epiphanes. That is God manifest. He believed he was God manifest. He assassinated the high priest Onias III. He burned copies of the law of Moses and he executed anyone who held a copy. He hated the Jews and all things Jewish and this period of persecution lasted for over six years. From 171 to 164 BC, when Antiochus dies an untimely death in late 164 BC, just like Belshazzar. And the end of that time of persecution is so significant to Jews even to today that Jews still commemorate the ending of that persecution with the celebration of Hanukkah every year at around our Christmas time. Yet almost 400 years earlier, 400 years before Antiochus came onto the scene, Daniel saw it in a vision that God had given him. Verse 11, the small horn set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. That is, he challenged God himself. He took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. You see, what's described in but a few sentences in Daniel chapter 8 covers hundreds of years of human history with the sort of accuracy that is undeniable that it is from God who rules the world and rules the times. I mean, no one who lived 400 400 years ago for us is what? The early 1700s, right? No one in the early uh, 1700s predicted that in 200 years afterwards, in the early 1900s, that there will be not one but two world wars. No one has done that. And then no one who lived 400 years ago in the early 1700s predicted that in the early 21st century, the times in which we now live, that America would be the great superpower and that China was a rising threat to world peace. No one predicted that. In fact, in the early 1700s, America didn't exist as an independent uh, republic. Yet Daniel's vision around 550 BC came to pass in great detail over 400 years later, even down to the length of the persecution itself. Have a look at verse 14. It will take 2,300 
evenings and mornings, which is just over six years, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now the question on our minds, as it would have been on Daniel's mind, is why? Why will God's people be persecuted? How can God allow such a thing to happen to his people? And the answer is actually given in the vision. It's because of sin. It's because God's people will once again take for granted God and his grace. They will disobey his laws. They'll turn their backs on him. They will forsake their God. In a word, rebellion. So verse 12, because of rebellion. This is why it happens. Because of rebellion, the rebellion of the Jews against God himself. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice will be given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. And as we'll see next week, Daniel can't wait for the Babylonian exile to come to an end. He can't wait to see God's people return to the promised land. He can't wait to see the temple rebuilt and the walls rebuilt and the city reinstated so that God's people live in God's land under God's rule. Surely with the Babylonian exile, God's not mucking around when he warns of punishment. God's not joking when he says he'll send them far away from his presence if they sin against him again. Surely the Jews would learn the lesson of history and never rebel against God again. And yet they do. And it's not because they'll, they'll be faithful for 400 years or so and for one or two mishaps, God hands them over to Antiochus IV. No, it's because God's been patient and merciful, yet for years and years and years they turn their back on God. Their sin becomes so blatant and so severe that God must put a stop to it. No wonder Daniel was so troubled by this vision and found it beyond understanding because what hope is there really for the people of God if they continue to sin and rebel? Like it's a tradition. What hope is there really for God's people if the temple of God can be rebuilt and be desecrated all over again? What hope is there really for God's people to truly worship God? Well, you remember when we studied John's Gospel earlier this year, it wasn't Antiochus IV desecrating the temple. Do you remember who was desecrating the temple in John chapter 2? It was the people of God themselves. When Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, he went to the temple, but what was meant to be a holy and sacred place was a noisy marketplace. What was meant to be a house of prayer was a house of business. And so Jesus makes a whip out of cords, drives the sheep and cattle out of the temple courts, and overturns the tables of the money changers. And it upset the Jews. They were furious with him. So Jesus takes the opportunity to speak about the new temple. Not a temple made by human hands with bricks and mortar that can be desecrated, but a temple of his own body his own flesh and blood. Jesus says this in John 2.19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And of course he was referring to his own body. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. You see, the Jews couldn't comprehend a change so great that the temple was no longer a building but a person. 
But Jesus once again points to his own death and resurrection and says that the new temple where sins will be forgiven and and dealt with once and for all, the new temple through whom true worship can be offered is Jesus himself. And then a couple of chapters later in John chapter 4, Jesus is at a well where he meets a Samaritan woman and the Samaritan woman offers to draw water for Jesus. But Jesus says, no thanks, I'll give you water, living water. And of course, Jesus was referring to the Holy Spirit. And when she debates with Jesus about where God can be worshipped, Jesus doesn't tell her to go to the temple in Jerusalem, but to himself. Have a look at this conversation. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. You see, Daniel's vision troubled him. And it was beyond understanding because he didn't know how God will ultimately solve the problem of worship. When our hearts are filled with sin and the temple in Jerusalem can be desecrated, there can never be true and everlasting worship. But Jesus comes not just as the man who will rule for God, as we saw last week, but Jesus will come as the temple of God who pours out his spirit to all who believe in him. And for us who believe, we're born again, with our heart of stone ripped from us and in his place given a heart of flesh, so that we might worship him in the spirit and truth, anywhere and everywhere. That is, our worship of God isn't confined to a day like Sunday or a festival like Easter. Our worship of God isn't confined to a place like Jerusalem or building like a church premises and so you'll know that i never refer to our church as a sanctuary especially not this place behind me which is in anglican terms a sanctuary but it's not because there's no sanctuary the sanctuary in the temple was destroyed jesus is the temple we worship god in the spirit and in the truth our worship isn't when we go on a pilgrimage or light a candle at a cathedral we worship god in the spirit and the truth in every area of our lives anywhere and everywhere and that's why in romans chapter 12 paul says that true and proper worship is offering our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god now why is it our body a living sacrifice Why is this true worship? Because 1 Corinthians 6 tells us to flee sexual immorality because what we do with our bodies matter to God, for our bodies is a temple for God. 19, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies you see no longer can anyone or anything desecrate god's temple for your body is his temple and what that means is that it won't be someone like antiochus the fourth who will desecrate god's temple today but it might be you desecrating god's temple by desecrating your body, by committing sexual immorality. And Ephesians 4 tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. 
And what does it mean not to grieve the Holy Spirit? Verse 31 tells us, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And so friends, are you flirting with someone you shouldn't be? Or sleeping with someone you're not married to? You need to repent and worship God with your bodies. When you're at Coles and there's a long queue and you're in a hurry and you're frustrated because the person in front of you is trying to pay but they forgot their pin and so it's taking forever. Are you worshipping God in Coles and putting aside anger? When you're at school and your friends are slandering and, uh, and talking badly behind people's backs, are you worshipping God at school? And asking your friends to stop and you want nothing to do with it. Well, when you're at work and your boss keeps taking credit for all your hard work and all your ideas, are you worshipping God at work? And getting rid of all bitterness? Because if you're a Christian, then you have the spirit. You have a heart of flesh. You can truly worship God in the spirit and truth. And if that is the case, then you wouldn't let these mistakes become a tradition, would you? That your behavior, that your sinfulness becomes acceptable in your life. Because if you know it's wrong and it grieves the Holy Spirit when you sin, then if a mistake repeated more than once is a decision, then surely you can't pretend that your sin isn't deliberate. So friends, if there's sin in your life, if you're grieving the Holy Spirit, if you're desecrating the temple of God, it's time to repent and to worship God in the spirit and truth. Amen.